Don't tell me you wouldn't have done the same. Because you would have. You would have started him sooner rather than later. You know what? The Owls went for it. And I would have done the same. I would have done the exact same thing. What's happening, everybody? He's Chez. I'm Balls. That's Davis Sanchez. I'm James Sabalski. Welcome back to The Waggle. Brought to you by Sport Clips, Mr. Sanchez. Sport Clips, the place that makes you look so, so fine. Hot steam towels, massaging shampoos, you name it, and sports, people. Sports, sports, and more sports. Hey, look, the NFL is just finally getting going. You've got the CFL midseason right now. It's all happening. If you're a football fan, you can take care of business and not miss a beat getting your business done on the top of your head, getting all looked after. You can go with Davis's go-to, the MVP haircut experience. And for Waggle listeners, if you go to cfl.ca slash Waggle, you can get yourself a free haircut. Get a coupon to redeem a free haircut. MVP experience style, courtesy of Sport Clips for first-time customers. Sport Clips, find the closest one nearest you at sportclips.ca. So simple that even one three-time all-star or four-time all-star three-time great cup champion mr davis sanchez can figure it out hey listen jazz i know there's a lot of people that want to get there's your some perspective debate, there's some debate yeah, on that the, of, the, the all-star lot. there's some debate on the all-star because one of those one of those all-stars is the voted uh, cflpa all-star voted by your peers as the as the all-star so you know, if you look it up, it says three some places it says four but that's why one of them is from cflpa which i believe Actually, when you look at all stars for guys, it will. When it says how many times they're all star, that's the press, that's the media voted all stars. And, and to be fair, most guys in the league take most most pride in being a CFLPA all star because your position, if you're a receiver, DB's vote. If you're an offensive lineman, defensive lineman vote. That's how the voting is done. So one of the, my all stars was a CFLPA voted on by the players in the league. So I, I don't doesn't count as an official all star, but I counted. And uh, especially because it's to the good, so I'll definitely add it. And then as I get older, um, it's going to be you know, four time. First, it used to be three time All Star. Then it's four. In ten years from now, I'm going to be a six time All Star. In twenty years from now, I'll tell my grandkids <laughs> that I'm a twelve time All Star because really, uh, hopefully, no one. The internet might mess it up a little bit, but it should. The numbers should grow with uh, my age, just because people forget and they can't find it anyway. Well, uh, exciting, hey, history exciting. history was made to be rewritten, right? History was made to be rewritten. Especially so if it makes just, you look. Especially if it makes you look good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you know, and I would agree. I think, with all due respect, and as a as a media guy and a guy who's you know got to this point and working in the media for what quarter of a century or so now, uh, I would still say that I think something voted by your peers is way more impactful than I would say. Uh, a media vote or a fan vote too and that's yeah you know we talk about the importance of fans and pro sports but i think if it's your colleagues the guys you match up against on the day-to-day i would think that would be way more impactful um a recognition to be perceived by your peers as saying you know what that's the man right there no that guy's a baller i think that's the i think that's probably the ultimate sign of respect isn't it yeah that's the ultimate sign of respect is uh, being voted on by your peers i think the guys around the league Feel the same way, but yeah, a big week of football. See ball is uh, 
Huge. Lot, Crazy comeback. Lots to get to, Crazy man. Crazy comeback in Toronto. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the most anticipated CFL debut in probably 10 years uh, since Ricky Williams came up here to the Canadian Football League. But before we get to all of that, Chess, let me just say this. We were just kind of talking about your history as it was, but I feel like it's a perfect time to recognize that it's somebody's birthday. Happy birthday, buddy. Happy freaking Happy birthday. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy. No. Go, Chezzy. Okay. It's your birthday. We're going to party like it's I... your birthday. Happy birthday, man. Yeah, yeah. It's Thank you, buddy. Thank you. I had a, you know what? Uh, great friends and family, including you, over at our, our guy, Bobby Singh, former former CFL, the only man in the history of pro football to own a Super Bowl ring, a Grey Cup ring, and an XFL ring. The man, Bobby Singh, a very good friend of mine and ours, uh, hosted an amazing uh, birthday party and a, and a welcome for Avery in Vancouver for all of my friends and family who haven't met her yet. And uh, he, uh, what a great host he was. Had us all at his house. Great barbecue and an amazing day. That's what those type days are. Uh, you feel pretty, pretty uh, grateful and and, uh, and fortunate. I got a, I got a great crew of friends, and we were joking that that uh, you know most. I think eighty percent of the the crew there I have known since I was sixteen years old. Same friends, like Drake says, no new friends. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I felt fortunate. It was really nice to be home here. In, on the west 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 and extra special shout out for bobby to uh send a little dirty bird everybody's way a little kfc he ordered for just just to keep everybody happy i uh got he had kfc he had he had nando's, nando's. He had sushi yep he had a full bar he had a swimming pool he had a we got to we got to guacamole shoot and flowing flowing uh throwing horseshoes uh beanbag toss and it was a uh, a great day we popped a bottle of champagne in celebration later on and it was yeah it was uh it was nice it was nice shout out to the sing the whole sing family is uh lovely wife and kids everyone yeah. was a part of it and, cool. and, I, and i just want to say too because we there's a lot of players there's a lot of coaches a lot of personnel executives and colleagues uh that listen to this podcast each and every week and just in case you're wondering bobby singh is much wealthier than all of you all right, we'll just point them. <laughs> Bobby's does, done well. Bob, Big Bob does. Big Bobby does all right. Yeah, Big Bobby's doing just fine. Big Bobby's doing just fine. Okay, so let's get into this. Uh, Johnny Manziel finally makes his debut, Chez. And boy, uh, I guess careful what we all wish for. I wanted to see it. I think you wanted to see it. Most of you wanted to see it. Even the haters, if you wanted to see it, so then you could feel good about yourself if it was going to go your way. And well... Anything that could have gone wrong ultimately did for Johnny Manziel. Just a complete disaster for the Owls and Manziel. And you know what? I'll say this, even for the CFL, because this is a guy who brought a lot of star power to the league, and this was on so many levels. Um, and so you kind of wonder what now on the heels of four interceptions uh, in his debut. He was ultimately benched, but the Owls have committed to the guy. And... You know, Chez, if we want to look, you know, and shoulda, coulda, woulda, uh, I think a lot of people, including Manziel's agent, thought it was too soon to throw him into the lion's den to have him start. But 
This really speaks to just how desperate the Owls are as a club to try to get him in as quick as possible, which was about a week and a half after they had traded for him. But I get it. That's what everybody keeps saying, and I, I kind of get it. I see that it's not ideal to put him in this way, this early. But I also, the way I see it is a little bit different, is that he's only going to, the reps he's going to get, they're not going to win with Vernon Adams either. Their team's not that good. So I don't think they're going to win with Vernon. And the best reps that he can get and the fastest way he can assimilate himself is to get real live game reps. Now, was it ideal for his career path? And, you know, because everyone now across the board and everyone who's talking about it, I see it all over ESPN and everyone's talking about it. Oh, Johnny Manziel threw four picks. And, and you know, so it wasn't ideal for him. But, you know, in regards to him and his process of, of – I don't think it hurts him. I think he gets some, gets some experience he needs. Um, didn't look great, but I saw some signs that that showed me that um, you know some some of the flashes that we've seen in his past that that the things he can do with his feet in in regards to in the pocket and uh, eluding tacklers and those things. And I mean, it is what it is. He had to play because they didn't have another option, or he didn't have to play, but they chose to play him because they don't really have uh, an option that they thought was better at this time. And for me, the more reps he gets out there, the faster he'll uh, you know, become a quarterback who's comfortable back there. So if anything, the only person that really hurts is, is maybe, maybe Johnny's reputation. If he's okay with that, and which uh, I hope he is, then good, good on him for going out there and sacrificing, getting a, a butt whooping and not looking good and having everyone talk about him you know, in order to, you know, for the team. So good, good on him. And, I mean, what else are they supposed to do, James? No, what is, no. What's the idea? What do you think that – he should do no it's they should do it it's easy to sit there and say shoulda coulda woulda right and hey you're you're, what a disaster and you threw him in too soon i get it and i totally get it and was it too soon yeah i think it's fair to say um but at the same time this like i said this speaks to just how desperate this montreal football club is so what and so what they don't have a quarterback they're not desperate they don't have a quarterback they don't have a quarterback so it's we can can scream desperate we can scream that that's a terrible move but the reality they just don't have a quarterback so they're playing the guy they went out and spent all the money and the assets on totally and that's and and you and you want it and you want to get him there because immediately you figure he's the best choice available i get it and you didn't and i think the line even mike sherman alluded to you know they didn't trade for him to sit on the bench but the players, they need the personnel. I think the coaches are feeling the heat. I think management is definitely in the fire right now. And ownership's looking at all the empty seats for the last few seasons. So they threw the guy in. I'll say this. You know what? Look, he hadn't started a pro game in three years, right? So you're, there's bound to be rust. The four interceptions are on him statistically. But I don't think you can put them all on him. Like there, there's tip, there's a tip pass. There's one he compl- he clearly overthrew, but you know that guy tried to make things happen. He tried to make plays happen, and nothing went his way. But you've got veteran receivers that just simply need to be better. You've got an offensive line that is a nightmare and has been that way for a few seasons now. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, I've seen people kind of suggesting that, you know, the Owls are more dysfunctional than even the Cleveland Browns because even the Browns waited, even the Browns waited before they started Johnny Manziel. So what does that tell you? But, I mean, they waited until the end of the season. I think it was December when Manziel finally made his first start with Cleveland. The Owls wait less than two weeks. But 
I get where they they had no choice to. I think in a lot of ways they had no choice, Chez. That's exactly what you, you you make the point, and I'm with you on that one. You know, it's easy to sit there and say, oh, the Owls are foolish for doing this, but you know what? Everybody wanted to see it, and I think everybody, if they were in the same shoes that Mike Sherman was or the Owls organization was, and that's every CFL prognosticator, every opinionator, every you know, every analyst, every editorialist, every blogger, every columnist, don't tell me you wouldn't have done the same because you would have. You would have started him sooner rather than later. I got the decision not to start him in that opener when, you know, in that first game when they traded for him and just days later, we both agreed last week, Chez, that was the right call. This time, you know what? The Owls went for it and I would have done the same. I would have done the exact same thing. There, there we go. And and it's uh, it's not getting any easier. Ottawa Red Blacks, who are going to be angry, they gave up a 24-point lead. They're the number. They were the number two-ranked defense in the league, giving up at points per game going into this. I believe they were tied for number two, and uh, they're going to be angry. And now, you know, in his second week of practice, he's now going to face this defense. So it's not getting much easier, but uh, fun to watch. That, that's the game, I believe, Saturday night. Yes, now, in, in saying that, what, the, what sort of Red Blacks team shows up here? Because this is a team that just for whatever reason, they've, they've been, they've been kind of herky-jerky all season long, and yet they were sitting there with a 4-2 and two record, you know, poised to go 5-2 and two with a dominant lead in the East and then let that one get away like they did um, to just absolutely blow it. Hey, uh, a tip of the cap to McLeod Bethel-Thompson, who looks like he's given the Argos something to, and someone to believe in here for the time being. I mean, what a story, what a comeback for this guy as the quarterback, four touchdown passes. But, Chez, how about this number? 13. 13 pro teams since 2011. Nine different NFL stops. Now, some of those with the same teams – but nine different stops in the NFL, uh, a couple of times, a couple of tours in the Canadian Football League, but finally gets his first CFL start after 13 different pro teams. And that's not even including a stop in the Spring League, Chez. You talk about a guy chasing his dream and to have that moment. What a great story for McLeod Bethel Thompson, a guy that I don't think anybody factored into being something uh, – of a starting quarterback for the Argos. I certainly didn't when you think about the depth with Ricky Ray and then James Franklin, but I think Beth, uh, Bethel Thompson's going to get an opportunity to be the guy for the foreseeable future based on last week. Well, I mean, based on the second half of last week, you looked at the first half and it was probably a conversation of would, would you put in James Franklin, you know, and then all of a sudden the second half, it's, uh, you know, makes a, a comeback. Of, I think it was the second largest in, in Argos history. So, I mean, yeah, he's definitely going to get the rock in the second half, and I think he he showed some he showed some signs. He obviously had some some big numbers in that second half and resiliency to come back in uh, in that game. And also, uh, let's give credit to this defense too. You can't be down twenty four buzz and expect to mount a comeback unless your defense is getting a whole lot of two and outs, which they did in the second half. So I expect uh, you know, hopefully they can pick up that momentum and carry that momentum into they have a bye this week, but they'll. Uh, they face BC in uh, week 10. Uh, we'll see where that goes, but I think they definitely, I don't think, I know they needed that. Uh, going into a bye week, you want to win. That that's, uh, sounds obvious, but uh, I can tell you, I promise you that you, uh, it's important, very important to win for your psyche going into the bye week. You know, when teams lose, guys get cut. Guys lose their job. That's, and if you go to a bye week after a loss, teams are saying, okay, 
we, we lost last game or we have, we've struggled. We got to make a change here. We got to make a change here. And that gives you time to sign guys, to work guys out, to make, make those moves. On short weeks, you often get another chance to play because they don't just don't have, don't have time to find somebody else. The fact that you win a game, might, I bet you it bought a couple guys who they were probably teetering on cutting or making a move, demoting, whatever it may be. Uh, getting a win says, okay, you know what? Let's not blow this thing up yet. Let's not, I didn't say blow it up, like blow up the franchise, but I mean, let's not make a move with this yet. He probably had a pretty, pretty good second half or a pretty good game. Let's hold off and see what happens, see if we can continue this momentum. So that was big for a lot of guys going home, being able to enjoy the off week and know that they're good for, you know, you're only week to week in football, but that feels good for a lot of guys, I'm sure, that are sleeping easy and enjoying their vacation. Yeah, no, a good, uh, just a just a nice story. Uh, the Red Blacks. Hey, tell me this: does does Luches Purifoy is he the scapegoat in all this? I mean, the, the Red Blacks cutting bait with him. It sounds like he's going to the Riders here now. But is is that do you have to find somebody to blame when you blow a game like that when you're up, you know, that significantly and let it get away like you do in a second half? Well, I don't know if you have to blame anybody in particular, but uh, uh, feels that way when you see that him. transaction, though, right? Yeah, didn't didn't help him. He was he was one of the guys in the offseason that was targeted by many teams as as a free agent coming over from BC. So he if that's a surprise to me. It really it really must not have been working, or there must have been something in the room that happened with Luchez Pirafort because you don't you know, when you're a guy that was sought after in in the in the off season, you don't last seven games and get cut unless something's going on. So uh, it was either really wasn't a fit either on the field or in the room. I didn't see anything glaring on the field, but uh, I'll take back and look at the film again and see what I, what I see. But uh, obviously just wasn't a fit there. He was playing boundary corner. That was also a surprise. You thought you'd bring him over and play him at safety, which I thought was a natural fit for him. And although you have Antoine Perel, that's not going to work. But playing him inside it at a halfback spot or a nickel blitz as well, and maybe playing a nickel would, would have been a fit for him. And so the fact that he played corner would tell me that probably – they didn't like what they saw at the halfback spot for him. Well, Thorpe did tell me, though, uh, that Luches, he went back and watched Luches' film at Florida and watching him play corner and was impressed with that. So that's what they thought corner. So anyway, that's uh, interesting. We'll see what happens if he goes to the Riders. I don't know if it's confirmed. Is it confirmed he's gone to Sask? Uh, that's what that, that's what the early reports are as we uh, as we record okay. this here. That's where it sounds like uh, uh, Luches Purifoy is off well, to. Well, that's uh, not surprising. He has the... Good old it's a southern guy with an SEC background, and he's a long, a long body. He's athletic. He fits exactly to what Chris Jones uh, likes. So I'm not. Uh, and they struggled with DBs. They actually were playing one of their wide receivers at defensive back at the end of the year, just in case nobody knew that. <laughs> and uh, so they can. Uh, I see what you did yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Oh. Yeah, you like that? Yeah, just just kind of keep that one anonymous. Uh, I guess speaking yeah. speaking of the riders, this feels like a perfect time to kind of transition to this. Uh, uh, the latest big shiny star uh, name to be uh, kicking tires potentially in the Canadian Football League, T.O. Terrell Owens. A day after his Hall of Fame induction, he worked out with uh, he worked out for Chris Jones uh, last uh, over the past weekend in Tennessee. Now reports suggest that he ran a four four forty. Um, but I think even Chris Jones was quoted and, and commented on uh, on the workout and impressed by the workout to a degree, but also said that you know he's far from football shape. I, here's here's what I would say with this, Ches, in, in my mind: the Riders don't need to sell tickets, so I don't necessarily see this as a real football thing. But 
Does this not speak to the pressure Jones is under? The fact that he's considering bringing in a guy who hasn't played a game in the NFL in eight years. But look, would I be curious? Sure, I'd get my popcorn ready, just I think as many people would. But shouldn't the riders be looking at players closer to 24 rather than 44 here? This doesn't speak to the pressure of Chris Jones at all. I, I, if anything, it speaks to the fact that he's not feeling pressure, that he's going to look for whoever take a look at whoever he thinks can help his team out you get he'll get ridiculed more for signing to uh than he would uh, not signing him so if, if anything to me this is this is chris jones saying hey i'll take a look at you he happened to be in the neighborhood yeah, chris jones was down there for the bye week to was at ut Ch- chattanooga for his hall of fame speech they went to the same they're both alumni of, of the school chris jones Tiraro Owens wants a job. Chris Jones said, I'll take a look. And I think that's, that's about the end of that. I, I, I think it's highly doubtful that T.O. actually signs up here. The fact that I, don't think that, that I don't think that the Riders will sign him. I think he wants to play up here, but I don't think the Riders will sign him. But I do think that it was, it's worth uh, you know, taking a look since he's, since he's down there anyway. But I think the Riders are just, just fine at wide receiver and don't think they would uh, improve their team with T.O. As an addition, and I don't think I know they don't need it to sell tickets, so I don't think it's going to happen. That's just that's just me. Boy, from a personality standpoint, Deron Carter and To on the same team would be um, not boring. Well, that would be good. That would be made for <laughs> you know. In it, that you know what for that reason, it might fit in another market because yeah. he will sell tickets. The writers don't need To to that's sell it. tickets. And you, know, and you meant you did. You mentioned that it might be desperate. It might be Chris Jones might be desperate in this situation. I think the total opposite. I don't think he's desperate at all. I think he's giving a alum of University of Tennessee Chattanooga an opportunity to look, and he'll say, why not? It hurts nothing, but I don't think they'll actually sign him. Yeah, I just, I mean, even if hypothetically this were to happen, Chez, you would think that T.O. would come up, and the question you have to ask yourself is, is that a guy like that who's been through what he's been, um... Is he willing to sit there and be a practice roster player for how many weeks to get acclimated to the game and then maybe, what, say six weeks down the road or a month down the road, you have him ready to go and step in for kind of the stretch run here for the final half of the season? I I just, it just, it feels like a reach. It feels like a reach. And, you know, when you put it in that sort of perspective, you know, maybe it's just simply at the root of it just doing a solid for T.O. who's hungry. Take a look. Yeah. The guy's a Hall of, the yeah. Hall of Famer. He wants to still play. Yeah. They're in the same They're in the same area. Chris happened to be home on his bye week. I know Sask was off, so he was back at home. And, and like I said, they're, he's an alum, and he wants to play. Why not take a look and see? And maybe they could work something out. But I don't think it's, it's, not, a pressing, it's not a pressing situation where I think Jones is actively pursuing Terrell Owens. I think, it, I think Terrell Owens wants to take a look, and he'll uh, – and so that was it. I think it's said leave it at that. I, I doubt it's happening. Yeah, I, I mean, receiver, receiving uh, is a position of strength right now for the Riders when you look at, I mean, look at Deron Carter and Naaman Roosevelt alone, right? I mean, I think you're okay. I think you're okay in that spot. So um, there we go. That's that's that on, on, on where T.O. Uh, looks ahead. 
Um, I, you know, can I just remark quickly? The we we get remarks sometimes from people on social media, and, and listen, we love the feedback, we love the hate, we love the love, we love the hate, we love the opinions, we love the perspectives. So thank you, everybody. At Davis Sanchez is where you can find Chess. At James Sabolski is where I'm hanging out. Uh, that's C Y B U L S K I. But listen. Please, for those of you that get upset because we have not addressed your team on a particular week, simmer down. All right? Simmer down. You might, your team may have been off that particular week. Uh, there may not be a whole lot of drama surrounding your team that particular week. There just may not be a compelling story for us to get to for that particular week. And we are not of the opinion uh, that I know, we I want do to force feel it. it's, it's tough. No, that's, you're right. It is tough because we do get a message for, you get messages you know, saying, hey, why you didn't talk about this team this week? Why you didn't talk about this team? And it, it is difficult because you want to keep the podcast tight and not, and not uh, spend an hour, which a lot, a lot of times we do. I'd like to make it tighter, but then you also want to spend time talking about the topics that are interesting to most or compelling, whatever you want to get at. But uh, we say it all the time. There's off, that's why a good thing to do is you know, hit, us, hit us up on Twitter for, you know, and we can talk stuff. I talked to a lot of people on Twitter, DM or or, or through Twitter, whatever it may be, because it's just stuff we can't get to every week, and there is lot, there's so many more. We could do a three-hour podcast sure. every week, really, because there's so much to talk, so much to talk about, and, and every matchup. Trust me, there's a whole lot more in depth that we want to talk about, and, and we and on our other platforms we talk about. I obviously do it at, at TSN, and obviously at, at doing my .ca stuff, and, and we always we're always talking through the week different stories, but only so much can fit into this podcast, so it's. Uh, Hit us up on social as well, right? See, Bob, go back and forth. I could talk way more smack on social if I, if I slide in the DM. That's right. Yeah. You're, I think you can cuss more on social, which uh, we, we have to. <laughs> nah, man, keep... screen screenshot screenshots will kill you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just make it verbal. Just make it verbal. Just we'll, we'll just call you up and scream at you. Uh, so okay, well, just just quickly uh, a look ahead to Week Nine uh, going to the CFL. You've got Edmonton and BC, which kick things off with Thursday night football, which is which is winding down. Uh, you know, hey, nice job with the summer concert series by the Canadian Football League. Uh, I don't know what to make of the Lions, but you know what? It's it's clear to say that the Lions are the uh, are the least of the West. I, I, I would think when you look at the power balance, Calgary is still the cream of the crop, and I think we can start maybe discussing the idea of a perfect season once we get once we get around to Labor Day. I mean, if they're at the midway point and they're still perfect, all right, then we can have this discussion. But in the meantime, uh, Edmonton looks like they've kind of found their groove, and Mike Riley's Mike Riley. Uh, you got Hamilton and Winnipeg. You know what, Chez? As much as the Manziel round two uh, against Ottawa coming up this week uh, is intriguing for a lot of people, the Hamilton-Winnipeg matchup, to me, is the most fascinating matchup of the weekend. Um, you try to figure out which Bombers team is going to show up. You've got a few weeks of a healthy Matt Nichols now. He's got an extra week coming off uh, by, but you know they posted almost 80 points in consecutive wins over the Argos, where Hamilton's coming up after posting 50, hanging 50 on Montreal um you know both teams have had their their bumps in the road so far this season but this is one where if either team gets on a groove I think you know Hamilton Hamilton should and can be the beasts of the east and Winnipeg you know are they finally ready for prime time now are they ready to take that next step finally uh are they ready to to leapfrog Edmonton are they ready to contend with Calgary uh can they get there and you know, this is, I think this is a telling matchup for two teams that I guess I would describe right now at best as being middleweights. 
Yeah, that's the kind of the, the conversation we've had with both of these yeah. both of these guys. But it's it's uh, you know it's you want to say you don't want to underestimate or undervalue what happens in the regular season, and and I think that we have a tendency to do that, like just waiting for the the, the playoffs. And we'll see what happens in the playoffs. We'll see what happens in the playoffs. But there's certain games, certain matchups that I think tell you a lot about where teams stand and kind of where they're at right now in, the, in, in their, in, with their team and how, how just how good they are or where they need to improve or you know, kind of paint the, paint the picture for, you know, November. And I think this is one of those games. So there you go. Uh, a quick look ahead. I mean, it's, it, it's the games that I, I start looking forward to that when I see the schedule and you start getting to the, that final week or so of, uh, of August and you finally get the bombers and the stamps going head to head, you know, you, you start seeing those matchups um, you start hitting those Labor Day classics. And, and once we start seeing where things sit, Edmonton and Calgary, you know, when you start looking at what Calgary has looming, I'll tell you what, and just quickly on the stamps, um, August 25th, they host Winnipeg. Then the following weekend, you've got the Labor Day classic at home to Edmonton. And then, you know what, you go right back at it the following Saturday, Edmonton home to Calgary. You look at those three weeks. I'll tell you what: if Calgary's still perfect after that, it'll be. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? That'll be. Uh, be no, I don't say uh, it. Say I'll, it. Say it. I think. I think. I think I would be willing to have a strong conversation about a perfect season for the Calgary Stampeders. <laughs> but that's that's the schedule. Slow down. Slow that's down. The schedule. Slow down. Slow down. But there is the there's 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 the meat. There is the eye of the storm of the 2018 season for the Calgary Stampeders coming up at the end of this month. Put your name on it. Put your name on it, Z-Ball. Are they going to go undefeated? Put your name on it. If they can get through. I'm just saying here right now, if they can get through. I'm not entirely sold on Calgary's offense just yet. I, I You know, they're deep, defensively. I don't, say I, told, I don't want to say I told you so, but going into the season, you know I said Calgary was going to be done. Yo, no, you did. You and did. The guys, the, the, guy they, the guys they lost, they'll be they'll be just fine. They actually, nope. I the one that, I'm the one that said they were going to be better than they were last year. You you, call, you called it, and I and I didn't see it. I did, I did not see it. I did not see it based on the personnel moves that they had made but you know what strength from within uh and they have been outstanding and you know what i think there's still room for improvement offensively defensively they've just been absolutely dominant um but i still think that's probably a little more room for improvement offensively and we'll see as we get to the end of the month but i think if they if they if they can run the table you know winnipeg edmonton edmonton those three games i like the chances to go perfect how about that Unless they want to start resting starters again, which they've done the last two years, and well, we know yeah, how that's no, no. played out. Yeah, that's that's why there's so much. Yeah, I can't I can't see it happening, but it's you never know. We'll, we'll uh, like you said, you're not saying it, but you're saying let's let's look at this in a few weeks, but. I think in a few weeks you can have that conversation or a month that you can please have the conversation. All right. That's David Sanchez. I'm James Sabalski. Uh, don't forget, if you ever miss an episode, you can always find all of our archived, archived episodes in iTunes. Uh, they're all free to get to. And, you know, I know a lot of people uh, with Android devices have been looking uh, for additional ways to track down. We are on SoundCloud as well. Uh, So you can always uh, try to hit those links and we will make sure we continue to find ways to make this podcast as easy and accessible, whether it's right here on CFL.ca, in iTunes, SoundCloud. We're trying to work for you because we are uh, 
we are men of the people, if you will. Right, Chess? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what he said, what he said. So on that note, uh, yeah, we're going to let Chess get back to celebrating his 52nd birthday. Happy birthday, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it's Thank you, my brother. Great Thank to see you. you. And, okay. uh, and, okay. and just, a, just a special uh, look ahead for the following week. Uh, we I think that we are planning on trying to connect for a CFL Waggle Live Edition broadcasting uh, live on location from a sport clip. So we will keep you guys posted on that uh, coming up in the uh, in the uh, week ahead, in the next few days. So we'll keep you posted on that. But we're looking at that for next week. So we'll firm up those details for you guys on social media as we get a little bit closer. So for Davis, I'm James. Thank you so much for listening once again. The uh, very first and only ever general manager in CFL history that was a lady the one, the only Joanne Pollock. And what a story she's got to share. It happened. You know, for all those people that ask, hey, would you ever see a day that you would see a general manager in pro sports that's a woman? Well, guess what? It happened. And it happened, of course, in the trailblazing league that we love called the Canadian Football League. And it happened 30 years ago this year. Joanne Pollock shares her story next here on The Wag. Pleased to be joined at uh, this time by somebody who was a legitimate pioneer. We've talked about diversity of strength an awful lot over the last year or so when it comes to the Canadian Football League. And how often do you hear the story or hear somebody say, oh, when will we see a woman as an executive or a general manager in pro sports, whether it's hockey, whether it's baseball or in football? Well, I'm here to tell you it happened and we've got living proof of this, too. It happened a long time ago, and it's crazy to think that it hasn't happened since. But Joanne Pollock, who was the general manager of the Ottawa Rough Riders, when you took the job, what, 30 years ago? Has it really been 30 years, Joanne? It's been 30 years because uh, they offered me the job um, at Grey Cup in 1988 here in Ottawa. So it's been the 30 years this November. Wow, it's crazy how time flies. Uh, and it was a cold day in Ottawa. I can certainly remember that from that great cup. Uh, thanks for doing this, by the way. Nice to catch up. How are you? I'm great. Actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to do this because I just love talking anything football, especially CFL and especially the Ottawa Rough Riders and, and uh, the, the whole development of this franchise. So anytime somebody wants to talk to me about football, I'm there. Is it, is it crazy to think that it's been 30 years since you were named general manager? It is. It is because I don't think I'm 30 years older, you know, <laughs> but it, it, the time just flies. But uh, it's so funny because I, every time I go to a Red Blacks game, the stadium is full of people who I knew in 1988 and 1989. I mean, the Ottawa fan base is rock solid and there's a lot of people who are diehards who are there during my team. So paint the picture for us to go back. like. To hear that whole conversation, I'm sure you've heard it before over the, I mean, you're a sports fan and it's all, you know, women in sports and the opportunity and women empowerment. I mean, there's this whole Wonder Woman movement here over the last couple of years. Um, are you surprised that you've kind of been the original gangster and the only one really since? Well, I, I am actually, I am really surprised, but um, it was also, uh, th there was more to it than that too, because back in 1988, it was only football people who ran the business side of things. And it was hockey people who ran the hockey side of things. It, there rarely did professional sports step outside of people who came and grew up within the industry. It was so old in, school. 
it was old school. If you wanted to have any kind of a senior position in professional sports, you had to play it in, in uh, grade school, play it in high school, play it in college, um, you know, go pro, become, uh, you know, a coach or whatever. And you came up through the sports side. Nobody ever came up through the business side. And if you recall back then, you know, the uh, the CFL was in dire financial trouble and, and was very unstable. And uh, the Ottawa owners realized that they needed somebody to run the business, not necessarily a football person to run the business, maybe somebody from the business community. And the fact that I happened to be a woman was just, um, it was almost a sidebar as far as they were concerned. So it was both, both things were, were new, a business person and certainly the woman piece. <laughs> well, so, so to get to that point, paint the picture for us where, where the journey began for you. Where are you born in? I was born in St. John's, Newfoundland. I'm a Newfie. Okay. And uh, I moved to Ontario um, when I was young and grew up basically in Barrie, Ontario. And uh, was never really, never participated in sports. And, and I'm, I have zero athletic ability, but I was always very much in, into organization and, and uh, you know, students council and, and even local politics. So I was always very active, but never, never active in, in sports. And uh, then when I got to Ottawa, in 1984, um, I started working with the Ottawa Rough Riders really as a, a marketing consultant and, uh, you know, started to work with the, with the group that purchased, the community group that purchased the team from Chum, and then uh, started to work for Paul Robson, who was the general manager of the Ottawa Rough Riders back then, and uh, got very involved in Grey Cup and had all sorts of success on that side of it. And then when it came time to hiring a new general manager, the owners at the time, which were 27 Ottawa Limited Partners, Ottawa um, businessmen, um, decided that they really wanted to shake things up. And they did it. <laughs> they shook things up. And so nobody was more surprised to be offered the job than me. Nobody. So this came out of nowhere for you. You didn't came, have any sense that this was coming. Came out of nowhere. In fact, um, a, a couple of weeks before Grey Cup in 1988, Paul Robson had been fired. And I remember standing on the Bank Street Bridge, which you would know well, um, in Ottawa, looking at the stadium going, I hope whoever the new GM is still wants to involve me because I'm, I love this. And I remember thinking, I really hope they keep me involved. And then it was at, Grey, at the dinner at Grey Cup in 88 when uh, two of them pulled me aside and said, look, we're, we want to do something differently and we'd like to offer you the job. And I, I'd had a couple of glasses of wine, to be honest. And I, thought, I just thought they were joking. And it wasn't until a couple of hours later that they came back and said, no, we're serious. We'd like to talk to you tomorrow morning. And that's where it all began. <laughs> so you're, you're half pickled, it sounds like. And they offer you the job and it's like, come on, you're just messing with me. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> how it went down. Exactly like that. <laughs> Those are always the best job offers, aren't they? Yep. Yeah. Cause I, you, and then, then you kind of woke up the next day. We're at Grey Cup and, and the, the reality of it starts to sink in. And you're thinking, this is, this is real this is really happening and then so, it got interesting <laughs> i was i was gonna say so give me give me a sense of what so you must have been nervous when you were going out for your first news conference or you're excited for the announcement like and what sort of reaction do you remember oh i i remember it very well um i was very nervous and keep in mind i came from communications and i used to do, help people with media training and things like that and then it's one thing to give everybody advice and then it's another thing to be standing up in front of all of the media like that, but I had a, I had a, a, the night before my news conference, I had um, a fellow who gave me the best advice. He said, there's going to be a lot of people out there trying to prove that you don't know anything about football. 
He said, never answer a football question. Never. Because no matter what, it's not going to satisfy them. Instead, he gave me the line that said, you know, when they'd ask me a football question, he'd say, look, you don't have to know how to build a car in order to sell a car. And my job is to sell the franchise and sell the CFL in, and sell tickets and, you know, really the business side of it. And so I never, in all of the three years that I had, that I was general manager of the team, I never once answered a football question. Now, I can tell you I know more about football than most people you know but it, now, but uh, back then I just never did it, and, uh, and it served me well. Because there were people out there who wanted to sh prove that I didn't belong because I didn't grow up in football. Because, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong here, excuse me, uh, I'm getting all choked up on this, but Steve <laughs> Goldman was named coach not long after that as well. So he That's takes right. over as the coach. You're the GM. So do you effectively, are you es essentially deferring everything to Steve on from a football standpoint or, or how did you approach like in terms of deflecting all that? Because I can remember the experience of reading the papers uh, and you, you always seem there was always a the team was I mean with all due respect the team kind of stunk and that was always the kind of the, the hard luck time of the 80s and and into the early 90s but in the same vein uh you know you always seem to have this likability to you with the media there was I always seem to remember that there was always a charm about you in terms of the way you handle things like in the public eye is well, that fair thank, well I, I honestly I did I it, I got it from I got it both ways I had I had some places, some sectors that um, I think were quite, would, would have liked to have seen me fail, but I had a lot of people in my corner. And I do think that the Ottawa media were in my corner and wanted to see, they didn't just want to see me succeed, they wanted to see the franchise succeed. You know, they, we were, there was no Ottawa Senators at the time, we were it. it the, the franchise had gone through so much that I think that there was a lot of people who wanted it to work. And, uh, and, and I'm not saying that they gave me a free ride because there was nothing easy about what was going on at that time. Um, but they did, you know, and the other thing is I was young. I was a lot younger than most people. I was 29 years old when I got that job. So Which I is crazy, I should point out, that people talk about what's happening in the NHL yeah. right now. And Kyle Dubas is 32 when he was just named a GM. And everybody's yeah. talking about this boy wonder. But you were, like, you were still in your 20s. Yeah, I was 29, and and that was the funniest thing because when the um, when when I I signed my contract and and uh, one of the owners said, "Wow, wait till they find out we hired a woman," and then I said, "Wait till they find out you hired a 29 year old woman," and they <laughs> dropped their pens. I don't think they had any idea, which doesn't say much about my uh, you know my youth, youthful looking appearance, but um, they had they had no idea that I was that young. So I, so with that came you know there was a, I had a lot of contemporaries in the media who were roughly around my, my age and I wasn't that much older than the players. So, you know, there was a whole bunch of people who wanted it to, wanted it to succeed. And, and, uh, I felt that in a big way. So give me a sense of like, you're essentially, um, you know, the, you're essentially on an Island in a lot of ways as being mm -hmm. kind of this, the only woman you're 29. So, you know, I'm sure your, your age is going to come under scrutiny. The fact of your gender at that time, 30 years ago, is probably, I can only assume, coming under scrutiny. Uh, what was it like to try to deal with, I, I guess, other colleagues? Like, did you, did you get a bit of a rough ride? You were saying that the media was, you felt like the media was there in your corner, but from another other standpoint, like, you know, you think about this old boys club, especially in those days, and you think a lot of those names over the course of history that, 
you know, they're no longer with us now, but it was a different time. And guys who were guys who were running the league in the 60s were still pretty much prevalent around that time in the 80s. Right. What, yeah. what was that? What was that like? Was it hard? They were. Um, I'm going to just add another layer of what was happening at the same time. As soon as I took over the job, it became pretty clear that the Ottawa franchise was bankrupt. And we were at the point where we were going, we were about to hit a big financial crisis where if we didn't get some concessions and we didn't get loans, we were going to be folding. And Montreal had already folded. And Montreal folded the year before this. So what happened right away is it became clear that if Ottawa folded, that the, the, the entire league was in peril. So the, the, the female thing and the young thing was out the window so fast because we were trying to deal with the, with the financial crisis and the financial restructuring. So um, a, lot of the, a lot of the things like, you know, somebody not treating you right or somebody calling you something, that stuff became noise and a distraction so fast that I barely noticed it. And we were so busy trying to restructure the franchise and trying to get, you know, some concessions both from the league and from our, you know, the city and everything that, um, that everybody at that point, we were all kind of pulling in the same direction. So sure, there was a lot of, there were some things, you know, that were probably now would never be put up with. But, but at the time, it was, that was the least of my worries. I was so terrified of being the person who was at the helm when the Rough Riders folded and potentially the league folded. And, and to be, so the, the pressure on me as a woman was I don't want to be the woman who is at, who is running this thing when the whole thing goes down. So it puts a lot of the other stuff in perspective. And then when somebody calls you toots or somebody asks you to go for coffee, there wasn't a lot of that, don't get me wrong. You know, you just, to you that's just like, that's just annoying. You've got bigger, I've got a payroll to make tomorrow at three o'clock and I don't have the money in the bank. You know, so it put a lot of the other things into perspective. And at the end of the day, we were successful. We restructured. We lived another day. Um, but uh, the, the, the enormity of the pressure was so much greater than being the first female in a professional sports franchise. Wow. And so all that, so it was a nice distraction, if you will, from worrying about uh, getting, uh, you know, being dealing with uh, being asked for coffee and all of that at the, at the yeah, same time. I never and, worried about that. Uh, on that front, there were, the interesting thing about that is um, the, you know, there, when you would look at the entire population of, of the CFL, the oldest guy who was actually at the table at the time was Ralph Sazio. So Ralph Sazio was like pushing 80. Cal Murphy and those guys, they were sort of, you know, they were in their 60s. Yeah. But what you, what, what you noticed is you would know, you, from my perspective, you would see the population in terms of tremendous um, enlightenment as you went from older to younger. So the older guys were kind of like, you know, what is she doing here kind of thing. But they were, you know, they, they weren't, there was nothing about their behavior that was inappropriate. So, you know, there, was, there would be that. Then the guys who were in the 60s were a little less. Then the guys who were in their 40s, like Mike Riley, who's, you know, now a great coach in, in the, um, you know, in college football in the States. Yeah. Mike Riley was like 39, okay? So, so, and Mike and Steve were very good friends. So Mike Riley was, you know, Bob Abilovich was great. Then when you got to the player level, they were, they were the guys who were in my corner more than anybody, especially because a lot of them had felt like they had been, you know, hard done by by some general manager. So they were there. So you would sit back and you could be discouraged by some of the attitudes of the older guys and the, but you'd be very encouraged by the younger guys. But then 
three years later, then it was almost like I was completely accepted because what I realized is it's a prove-it culture, a prove-it a prove culture, not necessarily a male-female thing. It was more, she's new, she hasn't proven herself yet, why should she get any respect from me? And then by the third year, you know, I, I, was, I was treated like everybody else. So I, I found the whole thing in, at, 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 all in, I found it very encouraging. You know, what I think of in today's day and age now, I mean, women covering pro sports teams is way more commonplace and they're in the dressing room, you know, more times than not. But at that time, 30 years ago, it wasn't quite as common. I, I almost I almost liken it back to where I think of you almost as the 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 evil owner from the movie Major League uh, with the Cleveland Indians. And, you know, she'd walk into the <laughs> storms into the room and everybody ah, and everybody's grabbing a towel. Everybody's all, you know, embarrassed and shy. Like, what was it like? Did you have to be mindful of even that 30 years ago? 30 years ago was the first time that we did see female um uh, reporters wanting to have gained the same access to the dressing room that men had. So that was breaking at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. So um, I think Jane O'Hara was the sports editor yeah. at the, time of the Ottawa Herald. And Jane was, you know, she was very much, you know, was going to, you know, break that ground. I, I just, that was one of those things I just didn't get involved in. You know, I, I had to pick my fights. My biggest fight was to try to refinance and, and restructure the team and make payrolls. And I didn't really get myself involved in any of uh, any of those other issues. I left those for other people. Now, when you uh, you you were part of now with some of the transactions, if I remember correctly, Damon Allen was one of the big acquisitions for you guys um, yes. going into the '89 season. I believe you guys poached a bunch of players from Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken, or made a big splash in free agency. Um, yeah, we did. To go yeah, in. we had we did we had a we did uh, we signed five in one day. That was that kind of yeah. That that didn't what didn't go over too well with my my brethren, but uh, yeah we did we did make a, a, quite a splash. We so whose call was that? For all three who, years. Yeah, who was now who who was call whose call was that to make that to make that move at the time? Because you said you kind of stayed away from those football decisions, but you ultimately had to sign off on them as the GM, right? Very much, and the owners. So we would it was uh, Steve Goldman, of course. Yeah. Um, our our president uh, um, at the time was I can't remember if it was Hap Nichols or Mike McCarthy. Um, but but again, the business community. We were we were a team of you know we we didn't do anything without involving our ownership. Like that's a, that's actually the way professional sports franchises operate now in a big way. Um, but we a big decision like that that would involve writing some pretty big big checks in in context. You know, it would it would involve myself and Steve and the ownership, and we all kind of came to that decision together. It's crazy when I look at the roster from around that time and, and look at the talent. And I know it didn't necessarily click at that particular point, but, you know, some of the stars that were out there, the the personalities, John Mandarich, Glenn Kolka, you know, Damon Allen, Orville Lee, Reggie Barnes, you know, yeah. Stephon Jones, Ken, who was yeah, one of Ken my favorite Rare. riders. Yeah, Ken of Rare on, yeah. that, on that squad as well. Um, it was a great group of people. And Irv Damon, yeah. Yeah, we all, we all still see each other you know ottawa a lot of the great cup was great because a lot of them came back for great cup in in uh, last year so we see i see them a, a lot i'll see a lot of them at the games um we had a, we had a couple of players who were inducted in the auto sports hall of fame a couple of weeks ago a lot of them show up it's it's a community it's one of those things that when you're together with a team like that you're all it never goes away it never leaves you so yeah it was a great group of of uh players they were very supportive of everything we were doing in the community. Um, we were very, very lucky to have all of them. And, and uh, I, I still, 
that's why Facebook is such a cool thing. I'm Facebook <laughs> friends with pretty much all of them. <laughs> You got to pick your spots on Facebook. I feel though, more times than not now. But I should also yeah. mention James Ellingson as well. Yeah. What, 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 I, he was, and I, and the only reason why I include his name on that, I remember him being the first athlete that recognized me for what I did in the media, and he was like, "Oh, I listened to you on the radio," and I was like, oh, "Whoa, <laughs> these guys know who I am," and that was like my 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 first little mild moment of acceptance in media, going back what about twenty five years ago. Um, so, so going through that, so you're trying to make sure that the team stays afloat during all of this. You're still trying to, you know, navigate all that and all the other, what, you know, just in terms of what's appropriate workplace conduct that we're way more aware of in 2018 than we were in say 1988. Um, you ultimately, you ultimately walked away. You walked away on your own accord, uh, if I remember correctly, like this, what, why? Um, well, honestly, because we had sold the First, I never, of, of the entire three years, I was convinced we were going to be, um, go bankrupt at any time. Like I was always afraid, you know, for the worst happening. And then we ended up, now this is, there are some sports fans out there that will cringe when they hear this, but the the, the people who bought the team were the Gliebermans. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, the Gliebermans bought the team. And uh, and to be honest, the Gliebermans, I, I had nothing but good experiences with them. Bernie Gliberman was a is a great man, and Lonnie was very, very young. Um, but they bought the team, and then I, I, I brought with it a lot of baggage. Like, for example, they would want to bring in this advertising agency, and I would be, but these guys did it for us for free during the bad years, you know, and then I realized that I, I had too much baggage, and it was time for them to kind of get on with it themselves. So I stayed through the end of that season, through the transition, and then I moved on and realized it was time to kind of move on to something else. And off uh, and off he went. And and you're still a season ticket holder now for the Red Blacks if uh, is that I'm, right? I am so lucky. Yes, that one of the great perks of of my um, history is I got to we got to pick our season tickets before they went on sale. So I'm on if, if anybody's been in the Ottawa Stadium on the south side there's there's a field entrance right on the 55-yard line and I lean on the bar. So I'm I've got the best seat in the entire stadium and I'm there every game. Nobody likes to show off, Joanne. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you what goes through your mind when you see like you saw the lean times you're obviously and and you saw at a time where I mean, man, it broke it broke my heart in a lot of ways at, at that time as a kid who grew up and as you said, long before the Senators, you know, the Rough Riders were the biggest ticket in town. And, you know, to watch the franchise erode the way it did, um, you know, I remember doing on community television, taking part in a uh, Save the Riders telethon in 96 <laughs> and doing whatever everybody could. Right. Um, yeah. And and to see but to see that go by the wayside at the time, what was what was that like for you? It was it was hard because I all I knew that the the city was the, the fans never abandoned the team. The fans were there. The problem that we had was ownership structure. And uh, what we have now in Ottawa is the best possible ownership structure you could imagine. The, the, the amount of money they've invested into the, in the facility, into the team, it's not, a, it's, not a, um, you know, it, it's not an accident that this team went to their first Grey Cup and then won a Grey Cup almost immediately. These, everything they do, they do right. So um, I watch it all, and, and I guess I watch it with a greater appreciation because I know how hard it is. And a lot of people, I think, take it for granted. I don't take anything that these guys do for granted. I watch even things like flying the, the pride flag at the stadium during um, Pride Week. That's something that the CFL wouldn't have even 
wouldn't never have done, you know, uh, uh, probably even 10 years ago. And now they lead the charge. Um, you know, diversity is extremely important in this league. But I watch this group of owners, the Ottawa Sports and Entertainment Group, and they do everything perfectly. And they are the model of how a franchise should be run. And uh, so I, I watch it with, with, with relief because it, you want to be part of something that, that lasts. And so we're all, we're all pretty happy about it. Like Russ Jackson is in town all the time now. You know, I mean, it, a lot of the old guys, they all, they, we just feel so proud to have a little bit of um, connection with this team now. Was there never an opportunity to get back into the league? Um, they didn't pursue me, and I didn't pursue them. I, no, I, my days were, I, I had moved on. Um, I, I, the one thing about working in, in, in an area that's your passion is it stops becoming your, your hobby and starts becoming your job. So when you're outside of it, you can love it again. When you're inside of it, the stress and the strain, it's a job and the pressures, like every game, I never enjoyed a game because every single game was, am I getting enough money for payroll? What's, I do, are the concessions properly staffed? Are we selling the proper? It was always so much stress and, and pressure that you couldn't, be, you couldn't be a football fan anymore. And so now I'm a football fan again. When we talked at the beginning of this conversation, it was uh, somewhat somewhat surprising uh, that you really are kind of the, the pioneer and really the only one since then. Um, you know, there's there's an assistant general manager now in Catherine Reich uh, with the Argos. But um, how does that feel being being the first? Um, it's 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 a pr- it's a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. I mean, how lucky am I that 30 years later that you're even interested in talking to me about my story that's really cool and uh i actually when catherine when the alouettes played in ottawa last year catherine and i went out to lunch and we had a nice conversation and talked about a lot of the things that i face she still faces um but it, it was cool to be the first it's, it's an honor really it was a privilege to be there i got to see the inside um i, I wouldn't have changed a thing it was hard the hardest thing i ever did um, but it was it was so rewarding and it was a privilege. So for for women that might be listening right now and young professionals that you know have a dream and say I want to be that next woman to break the barriers and become a general manager or become an executive, what do you say to them that might be listening? Well, I say to them if you've got to bring something to the table, you have to bring a skill to the table. So Catherine is a lawyer, for example, and Catherine is, is like a great negotiator of contracts. Catherine brings a skill to the table that is highly valued. I brought marketing and business. You know, what, if you want to get involved in, in, in professional sports, it's like any other industry. You've got to be the best at what you do, and then you've got to, you know, then you bring it to that business. And so I guess, because a lot of women ask me that, and you, you can't just say, I want to be involved in sports. You have to say, I want to be the best marketing person. I want to be the best lawyer. I want to be the best accountant. I want to be the best at negotiating contracts. You know, I want to be the best at scouting talent. And then you become really good at that. And then you become a commodity that the professional sports teams want. That's what the men do in the business side of it and in the coaching side of it. They bring a skill that others covet. And it's the same in business as it is in professional sports. So if you go at it with that mindset, you find out what you love, you become the best at it, 
then then a lot of these teams, they will hire you in a heartbeat if they think you're the best at what you do. Is there something the league or any pro league can do more to create more opportunities for women in front offices? Um, I, I, I think it, it's all about keeping an open mind. And if there is a job open, making sure you go and hire the very best person. And if that person happens to be a woman, then that's great. And uh, so it, you, you still, at the end of the day, it's a very competitive business. And you've got to, you know, everybody's job is on the line every week. So people are less likely to take chances on people, probably in professional sports, because like anything else, you've got to think about your own job and your own family first and foremost. So, you know, you're going to hire the people who you think are going to give you the best chance of being successful. So if any woman want, if you can convince whoever's hiring, which is what Catherine did, you convince anybody who's hiring that their best shot at being successful is having you by their side then it's a win-win for everybody. And that's what has to happen. It has to be a win-win for the franchise and it has to be a win-win for you personally and professionally. So for everybody that's been wondering what you've been up to, what are you doing these days? I am the Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs at Canada Post. I'm very lucky to be here. And, and in fact, um, unveiled a wonderful series of stamps for the 100th anniversary of the Grey Cup. And, and, and at that time, the Ottawa franchise wasn't back. So I, one of the most the proudest moments was when I got to stand next to Russ Jackson and unveil a stamp uh, to commemorate the return of the Ottawa Red Blacks to the uh, Canadian Football League. It was awesome. My two That's, worlds collided. Do you find that working with Canada Post in 2018, do you, do you find, uh, is there any sort of symmetry where you had to negotiate in 30 years ago um, some rocky financial times for the Rough Riders. And here we are in 2018 where I'm sure there's some people that say, mail, who sends a letter anymore? Like, who does that? <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of that approach, I mean, do, do you find it the unique challenges in today's day and age then or even see any parallels? You know at the time, their business is in transition. You know, the, yeah. uh, the, the CFL was, a, was a, a, an organization in tremendous transition back yeah. then. Who would have thought... Like, I sit back here now and I'll go, there are four new stadiums in the CFL? Are you kidding me? We couldn't get our score. You remember, we couldn't get our scoreboard fixed. You know, so... <laughs> the so burnt the CFL, out lights. Yeah, the burnt out lights in the scoreboard. <laughs> you know, and now there's four brand new stadiums? Are you kidding me? So the, it was very much an organization in transition. Canada Post right now is an organization in transition, whereas nobody is sending mail anymore, but e-commerce and parcels... We are now exploding in the parcel business. So it's it's the principles are the same. It's it's how do you work with a business that's going through transition? So I, a lot of what I learned with my time in the Canadian Football League and with the Ottawa Rough Riders, I bring to the table every single day here at Canada Post. Thank you for sharing your story and what a trip down memory lane as somebody who grew up in the nation's capital and, and boy, what a nostalgic conversation. But congratulations and uh, you know what? You were the first and and I think for a lot of people listening. Uh, here's hoping you're not the last because uh, we are in 2018 right now. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, James. Joanne Pollock, the first woman general manager in North American pro sports. And yes, it happened right here. We talk about diversity as strength. And once again, shining oh so brightly 30 years later, joining us in conversation here on The Waggle. <music>